When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everybody? It is Ricky LeBlue, the associate editor and Virginia Tech football beat writer for TechSideline.com. Welcome back to another episode of the TSL Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Will Stewart here in front of me, Chris Coleman to my right. And uh, guys, we have plenty to talk about in this podcast. There's, It's the offseason, and it is spring football, but man, there's a lot going on in terms of Virginia Tech and the ACC basketball landscape. We're going to hit on that a bit. Uh, some kind of interdepartmental stuff, money being thrown around, stuff getting built. We're going to talk about that, but uh, how are you? How are we doing? Doing good. Doing all right. It's it's nice and warm today. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so excited. The snow <laughs> melted pretty. Quick. So how much? So will you live in Radford? Yes. How much snow did you get in Radford? We got a full foot, and it was really heavy, and it it wiped out a lot of trees. Yeah, see, we got less than a foot in Blacksburg, but we also lost a lot of trees. Some people in Blacksburg say we got a foot. In my I, house, I in so. my house, I, we only got like six or eight inches in my house. Yeah, I, I, it depends I was on which part of Blacksburg too. Yeah, yeah, maybe if you were in the Blacksburg closer to Christiansburg or Radford, but uh, but yeah, it was. I mean, March, March. Chris, you called it. Yeah, he, I remember on the podcast specifically, you said that we're going to get probably a good snowstorm in March. That was that's because what happened February last year. was so mild. That's what happened last year. Yeah, we, we actually probably, got two. Yeah, um, it didn't didn't snow at all in the in the winter months for two years in a row, and then we get, we get to March and and NCAA tournament week both times. Yeah, well, hopefully we're done. Hopefully we're in the we're starting to get into that full spring weather. But before we get into the whole podcast, and again, there's plenty to talk about. I do want to thank. One of our sponsors at the Fisher Law Firm. The Fisher Law Firm is Virginia's trusted DUI and traffic defense firm dedicated to defending individuals charged with traffic-related offenses. They have offices in Blacksburg, Abingdon, and Charlottesville and can serve the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. Whether you are charged with driving under the influence or speeding, the Fisher Law Firm realizes that each case is important to the client. The firm does cases throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia regularly appears in over 30 jurisdictions. Last year, 98% 98% of their caseload was traffic offenses, and to date, the firm has defended more than 15,000 people charged with moving violations. For a free consultation, you can call them anytime, day or evening, toll-free at 1-800-680-7031, or you can email them at info at fisherlegal.com. Again, the number is 1-800-680-7031, and you can email the official law firm at info at fisherlegal.com. All right, let's go ahead and talk some Virginia Tech football here. Uh, we got to talk to Devin Hunter for the first time since he's been at Virginia Tech uh, yesterday. We're recording this here on Wednesday morning. Uh, so, Devin Hunter, Chris, you were there. I was there. Uh, how Im- First of all, how impressed were you uh, with the kind of the, the quotes from Justin Fuente and Bud Foster and from Devin about kind of how he's handled the, uh, the hype the expectation level that's mm-hmm. kind of surrounded him since he's gotten here. Yeah, they said uh, he wasn't a prima donna, which I guess I took that to mean a lot of highly touted recruits they deal with are. And Justin Fuente said that's probably why I picked Tech. Yeah, um, which and I thought that I thought that I quote was that really telling. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So because you know water slides and and putt putt golf courses and that massage brooch. rooms and now Bama has a a, a barber shop. Yeah, that, that that doesn't really appeal to a guy like him. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think that appeals to uh, a guy like Hunter. Um, and the thing is, man, you got to be real careful when you go out and, and add, this is a blue, historically a blue collar program that's built on three mostly three star recruits, um, like most teams. Only the elite yeah. teams are the ones that get that are made up of mostly five and four star players. But uh, if you bring in a highly touted recruit that is a prima donna into a program that is based on blue collar three star recruiting. It's a bad fit. You have a, you have the potential to have some chemistry issues. 
Um, so when you do go out and, and recruit highly talented guys like that, you want to make sure they're the right personality fit for your program, and, and, and Hunter clearly is at this point. You know, one of the things I heard about, uh, and, and this is only, only half a story because I can't remember all the details, but when George Welsh was coaching at Virginia, they were a really strong program through the mid-'90s, and then they started to fall off in the late-'90s um, and very, very early 2000s. I, mean, I think he was let go after the 2000 season. Yep. And one of the rumors that was making the rounds at that time was that they had recruited someone. I'm not even saying he was highly rated, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the individual's name. And even if I had it, I wouldn't throw it out there. But they apparently recruited a kid who, by the time he was done with his three or four years, had served as some sort of cancer in the program and had pretty much split the team in two. And I don't really know what my point here is. You know, it's just not good to have guys like that in your program. UVA is – the tech fans would probably disagree with them being labeled a blue-collar program, but um, UVA is another program that historically is probably built on three-star kids. And Mm -hmm. um, if I feel like any time you bring a player of Devin's stature as a recruit into a program that isn't Bama, Clemson, Florida State, Ohio State, whatever – they have to be able to um, assimilate into that program's culture. And a lot of four- and five-star kids can't do that. A lot of four- and five-star kids, it's especially nowadays in terms of really recruiting and you know recruiting rankings coming out three years ahead of time for some odd reason, um, these kids have been, been told how good they are and how great they're going to be immediately for three years. They've had these writers telling them that. They've had coaches telling them that. They've had high school coaches telling them that. They've had their fellow players telling them that. And um, it's hard to get that de-recruitment process. That's a process that nobody talks about. All these players get recruited for two, three years, and then the meet the, the second they get to campus, they are de-recruited. Well, and there's two things going on in the 757 right now. Number one, they're all getting recruited to go to college. Some of them are getting recruited to go to high school, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let's call it like it is. That's the truth. It is. And uh, and, I, and I think uh, a guy like Devin Hunter, he's a guy who's, who never he, transferred. Who stayed loyal to his high school, and, uh, and I think that says a lot about him. You know, I mean, he's he, – I, I feel like he's just done a really good job of – of uh, understanding that, you know, he has a long way to go. And, yeah, he had some setbacks with his his concussion early on in camp. He had a hamstring injury that he dealt with for the early portion of the season. Um, and I think he's done a very – and he even openly admitted yesterday about how last year he got the feeling that he wasn't going to start because he just felt like Reggie was, was, was ahead of him in terms of yeah. the intelligence of the game and knowing the position. And I think it, it, it takes a lot of um, – a lot of – self-confidence to admit that publicly and to talk about how I wasn't as good as maybe everybody thought I was going to be. One of, one of the great things a man has to know is a man has to know his limitations. Yeah, this is true. Know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let, let me interject because I'm, I'm the guy that does this during podcasts. Talking talking about de-recruitment, uh, there's a movie from the 70s, late 70s, called One on One. It's a basketball movie. And Robbie Benson, of all people, plays a basketball star who gets recruited to Western something, you know, it's some made-up school, and he's a hot shot, and they give him a little sports car in his recruitment. And when he shows up, he shows up in the coach's office, and the coach looks at him and goes, who are you? The same coach who was kissing his hiney. And so this this <laughs> begins the whole process of, uh, of the kid's name is Henry, uh, of Robbie Benson's de-recruitment, you know, and how he deals with that and all that stuff. It's and a real thing for a lot of these guys. It's it's a, Even today, it's a watchable movie, and it even features a, a very, very early career appearance of Melanie Griffith, for you older guys that know who she is. She she plays a, she makes a brief appearance early not in the movie. Not a clue of who you're talking about over here. <laughs> Long story and not really what the podcast should focus on. So Anyway, one-on-one from 1977. I, I, I want to make a point. Of, uh, we're sitting here talking about Reggie Floyd, and Devin Hunter brought him up. Reggie Floyd wasn't quite as highly touted nope. as, as Devin Hunter, but he was still, I think, around 10th in the TSL rankings in state. Uh, I want to say he was in the 10 to 12 range. Uh, Ricky's going to look that up. Uh, but uh, Reggie Floyd came to Virginia Tech, did not redshirt, uh, played special teams, um, and hardly played any defense at all that year. And there was no indication that he was going to be a dominant, really good player as, as a true sophomore. 
he was very good as a true sophomore, I thought, in a starting role. He was able to secure that starting role at Rover in his second year in the program. Took a gigantic leap forward from his freshman year to his sophomore year. Um, so I, I don't regard Devin Hunter's first season as a disappointment because I wasn't expecting him to start. Um, but and quite a, a honestly, lot of people were. I, I, maybe, um, yeah, probably fans, unfairly. Not, not if they've read anything I wrote. So let's, <laughs> let, let's, add some, let's add some context Really here. quick, Reggie Floyd was 12th, 12th in your okay. in-state rankings right. uh, behind not seeing any big names here, to be honest. No kidding. Yeah. Jaquan Uli, who was 10th. <laughs> he wound up going to Alabama and flaming Eric, out. Eric Kuma, was, Eric Kuma was 13th, Philip Patterson 15th, Jovan Quillen 16th, Devontae Beckett 18th. I bet you'd bump him up a bit. Yeah, he would have been a good player. Yeah, he would have. Yeah. yeah. But go ahead. Go uh, Greg no, Dorch what... was 37. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> wow. So so let's add some context here. Devin was not a five-star, correct? But he was a borderline five-star? He was borderline. borderline. Yeah. Scout him in five-star rivals, and, and everybody else had him like an upper-level right. four-star. I think and... he, I think his 247 composite, which, again, there's some question about how that number is determined was right on under the cusp. I looked of, at it just this morning because I was looking up his height and weight yeah. because somebody was asking, did he shrink? You know, he's listed at 6'0". And when he was being recruited, he was listed at 6'1". And shrinkage of one inch is, is typical. Um, so I remember seeing, yeah, he was a very high four-star. And he was the number one recruit in the state, correct? Uh, it depends. Um, there, there is a certain – amongst Virginia Tech fans, there's a certain level of expectation when you have – a seven five seven recruit who is the number one or number two recruit in the state. There's an expectation that he'll play right away and he'll be awesome, you know, fair or not. Uh, so two again two four sevens rating. Um, Luigi Valane was actually the top recruit in the state. Kalan Laborn was number two. Devin was three. Okay. That was a really good year. For so he, state. He, was, he was the top recruit that Tech had a shot at. If right. <laughs> it's right. what I'm well, they finished second for Valane. Wow. Remember, he was a Canadian kid. And he went to Penn State, right? Uh, where was it? Michigan. 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 If, Michigan. If Devin were in the 2018 class, he would have been the best player in the state. I think, yeah, I think that's fair. Probably by far, yeah. personally. But um, the, the other thing I wanted to bring up about Devin is, you know, he's moving positions now, and that's something that we've addressed mm-hmm. on the podcast. But I don't think we, we really talked about it enough because, um, Will, you and I were talking about it in the office this morning about how um, – him moving to whip might be the fastest way to get him on the field. Yeah. And there's a chance, depending on how things work out, that he could start there this year. Right. If you're willing to move Mook Reynolds. Because you can't you Mook Reynolds obviously has to stay in the lineup. Yeah. Or if somebody gets hurt. Or if somebody yeah, gets of course. hurt. Um and if you if you look at him, you know, he's six foot, two hundred and eighteen pounds. But if you look at all his measurables, like his forty, his shuttle, all of that, his agility he seems athletic enough to hold up in coverage at the nickel spot while at the same time having the, the size and the strength to be very good against the run. He just seems like a natural fit yeah. at that position, in, in my opinion. And when when you look at Virginia Tech's cornerback depth right now, um, you know, you've got Jeremy Webb coming in as a Juco. You've got Adonis Alexander returning, but Adonis Alexander hasn't even has been suspended for Virginia Tech's last two season openers. How much in, in this past year he didn't play what all particularly well. I didn't he wasn't bad. Well, he was injured for a lot of the year when he was playing. Right. He didn't play particularly well, right, right. so it was kind of a down year. Yeah, exactly. So I I don't one hundred percent count on Adonis. Um, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Um, I would be very tempted if Devin Hunter has a good spring at whip nickel to give Mook Reynolds reps at corner. Reps at corner. Well, Mook, Mook weighs, is listed at 185, which means Devin outweighs him by 30 pounds. That means that, that Mook has lost weight because he was, he was 191, I believe, last season. But and, then again, he's been fighting with injuries since last year. Yeah. Which yeah. is why he's out for the – or out, quote-unquote, for the spring. And, and – a heavy shoulders really never, quick, never been Mook's thing. Yesterday, Mook Reynolds was his birthday, so happy birthday, Mook. Yep. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, I feel like Devin might be a better fit against the runner, even though I really like Mook against the run. I feel like he's really good at that. But if he, but maybe that's why he got hurt, because he was having to defend yeah, the run a lot. But if he has the, the ability to to hold up in man coverage against Boundary and you know those guys outside on the outside, then... Yeah, it seems well, like it might be the best fit. I think so. The secondary is very similar to the offensive line, and that you want to get your five best players yeah. on the field. Uh, and if, and and that's one of the things that that we've talked about too is that Tech recruits versatile defensive backs. Yeah, that's and right. And they like their defensive Correct. backs to be able to do multiple things. Exactly right. And and 
I think it's possible that after the spring that Devin Hunter will be one of the top five players. All right, we know we know um, we know Mook is going to be one of the five. Reggie Floyd will probably Reggie be Floyd one. Should be one. Divine Diablo should be one. Uh, Khalil Ladler could be one. He possible, very possible, because I think he played well well at the end of last season. So we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, I'm I'm warming up a little more to to Devin being at whip and at least giving Mook a look at corner when practice Seeing opens, if it works. just to see if it works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we'll have to see how it works. And if it does, Tech fans will definitely be happy, of course, to finally get Devin Hunter on the field because Lord knows they wanted it last year. Uh, we also got to talk to Ryan Willis and Hendon Hooker yesterday, and uh, that was an eye-opening experience for us, for Ryan, because we haven't talked to Ryan at all yeah. since he's been at Virginia Tech. Uh, one of the interesting things I thought that was mentioned was that he has a family connection with James Shebist. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that helped bring him to Virginia Tech. Um, and the other thing that, that really stood out to me was that Willis uh, said that he felt like taking that year off was indeed right. good for him. And that's something that you had talked oh, about before. Well, the poor guy had to go in and start for Kansas as a true freshman. Really? Justin Fuente noted yesterday, he was like, quite honestly, Ryan Willis played too early for a team that wasn't very good. Yeah, it's, it's exactly <laughs> does, does, Doesn't Kansas have the longest streak without going to a like ball? Nine years, yeah, yeah, I think it's nine, nine years. Yeah. Uh, of course they were good Kansas when they met. Shape. When they met Virginia Tech in the Orange Bowl, <laughs> I, I, I think that was as good as they could possibly be, and then Virginia Tech was just bad. Yeah. But, anyway, Tech. I don't want to talk about that. Game. <laughs> um, uh, I, I want to say that uh, you know Ryan Willis impressed me up there with, with his demeanor. He's he looks the part and, and everything like that. As far as the connection with his uh, dad, with for James Shebist, I don't know for a fact that this is how the connection came about. But Ryan Willis is from Kansas. James Shebist. In the mid to late nineties, was head coach of a junior college in in Kansas, and uh, which one? I, I forget, but it's it's the one Ricky Hall went to. Yeah, so James Shebus there, there's, was there's for, Butler and it might have been Butler or, or but there were there was two big ones that were yeah. feeder programs for Kansas State, right, and that's right. why Kansas State got so good. And uh, Ricky Hall, who was a wide receiver for Virginia Tech in nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine, um, and a very good one, went to one of these JUCOs before he came to Virginia Tech, and James Sheepist was his was his coach at that junior college. So there's your James Sheepist trivia for the day. <laughs> for James Sheepist trivia for the day. Um, and we also got to talk to Hendon Hooker, and, and one of the things that, that Fuente has mentioned uh, over the, the last couple of weeks of when we've talked about the quarterbacks is that even though Hendon was redshirting last year, it was a similar situation to Josh Jackson in the fact that uh, he was quote on alert was the was the phrase that that Fuente used for just about all of 2017. So he actually got actual reps in practice. So he was able to work with the with the tech offense instead of working with the scout team. Yeah, and and that makes your redshirt year even more beneficial that's than than a normal redshirt. So that's the best kind of redshirt you could possibly have. Yeah, uh, um, because a lot of guys, you know, if it's determined early, you're not you're not going to play as soon as the season starts. You're on you, scout you're team. on the scout team, and you're. That that week you're running the other team's offense or defense to help to help your first and seconds during prepare for the game. Yeah. So so you know you're getting better from the fact that that you you know you're adjusting to the speed of the game and you're in the weight room and things like that. But you're not really progressing within the system very much as you would be if you weren't on the scout team. Yeah. One of the things that that I'm kind of getting the sense of um, in, in terms of what we've heard from people and the comments that are being made publicly is that Josh Jackson is by far the best option at quarterback right now. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think most people's view of Josh Jackson was how he looked in the second half of last season when he was not healthy at all. I mean, word is he's taken a big step forward, but that's what you would expect because – his arm's not injured, and he doesn't have a fracture in his foot. I mean, what you well that and, and you know, coaches have talked about all the time about how the biggest gain that players make is from their freshman to sophomore season. I think that it's certainly a part. I think he's been able to take a mental jump because of his experience, but I also think that being healthy has made him has made him a better player. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, just rewind back and. Remember how well he played in that West Virginia game and how well he did running the football and, and that deep out to the opposite hash throw that he made to uh, – oh, gosh, who did he make that? that was, it, was it Burn? That's not Burn. 
not not Burns. Burns Carroll. CJ Carroll, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> man, uh, Willie Burns been gone. For Willie Burns appreciates. This that. is what you get with me, man. It runs together. <laughs> so I say the name, and Chris corrects me, and that's why Chris works for TSL. But yeah, I think I think when you look at some of his early game early games, I mean, you see his arm strength and how well he was able to run the football, but later in the season when he was banged up, he was a completely different player. Well, guess what? He's a completely different player again now because he's healthier and he has more experience. Um, and I just, I, I don't, he's going to win that starting job. I'd be very surprised if he didn't because, I mean, Hendon Hooker is a redshirt freshman. I mean, Josh Jackson was a redshirt freshman last year, but he was an advanced redshirt freshman. Hendon Hooker's not an advanced redshirt freshman. He didn't come from the same background as Josh Jackson. He didn't grow up in a college program. Yeah. Going through meetings with college players when he was 10 years old like Josh Jackson did. Um, So I think Hendon Hooker's on the right development track. I think he's where he should be right now going into his redshirt freshman season, but that doesn't mean he's ready to start because most redshirt freshmen aren't. Chris, you made a, a, an interesting comment. I can't remember if it was in an article. It probably was, um, but it was several weeks ago. But it was along the lines of, if Josh Jackson doesn't win the starting job, you're going to have Hendon Hooker as a redshirt freshman, likely. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who's going to be a redshirt freshman in 2019? Yeah. Quincy Patterson. Quincy Patterson. So are you going to try? Are you going to want to start three redshirt freshmen? Yeah, in three straight. Right, seasons? right, right. So when Hendon Hooker goes out and then <laughs> and struggles as a redshirt freshman at times, are, the, are those same fans who called for Jackson to be benched going to call for Hooker to be benched for yet another redshirt freshman, yeah. Quincy Patterson? And also, really quick, Quincy um, was put a, a a story on his Instagram of him weighing himself. He was at two hundred and fifty-two pounds. It's probably a little much. Um, but, <laughs> a little. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about Quincy right now. Going to have to cut uh, some Quincy, weight Quincy's when he gets of, to campus. He's one of those guys that looks like a grown man, you know, when you oh, see pictures of him. He, he looks, looks like, like he's like 20. He's 30 years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let, let me get this in before the conversation moves too, too much further down. One of the things I wonder is, you know, if you look at last season, uh, Josh Jackson was clearly hurt and um, did not perform well in the second half of the season. Uh Virginia Tech won four games in a row at the end of the regular season without scoring over 24 points, um, including a 10-0 win over UVA. So the offense was struggling with Jackson injured. And, of course, with Nijman being out, it also kind of started around then. Um, I wonder, clearly the coaches didn't have enough confidence in any backup quarterbacks to replace Josh due to injury. Yeah, clearly. If it happens, if it unfolds that way again this year, what will they do this year? That's a great question. Um, you know, last I think they'd be a lot more. Confident. I think I think if AJ Bush was still on the team, he would be fourth string after this. Yeah. after the spring. In my yeah, opinion. they had no confidence in Bush. Um, they weren't going to pull the redshirt off a of Hooker right. as long as Jackson could play. Right. You know. So. And I think if you want to follow the progress of Hendon Hooker, here's how you determine if he's making good progress. You know, And it doesn't necessarily mean he's not making good progress if this doesn't happen, but if he ends up being the second-string quarterback this year, if he can beat out Ryan Willis for the number two quarterback spot, that's a really good progress because you're talking about the fact that he will have beaten out a guy that's a former starting quarterback in Power 5. And, and Ryan Willis, I mean, I've seen him throw. He's got a good arm. He's a capable player. I would not feel unconfident if I had to go into a game with Ryan Willis as the quarterback. So if if uh, Hendon Hooker is able to beat him out for the backup job this year, then I think you can look at Hooker and say, okay, that guy's making the kind of progress that we really wanted him to make at this stage of his career. But to, to ask him to go out there and start as a redshirt freshman and beat out a returning starter who overall was probably, from a pure numbers standpoint, the second or best third best freshman quarterback in the country last year that's that's a lot to ask yeah it is you know that if if josh jackson wins the starting job that people are going to start asking about when head and hookers transferring well that's that's the nature of the beast and and i've wrote this when quincy patterson signed i mean you signed three capable players three years in a row they can't all start it's it, it's 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 that it's that one position in football where you can only play one guy and, and, and linebacker now. I was going to say, actually, if you're talking about Virginia Tech, it's two positions. Uh, um, you know, and, and college coaches accept that. There can only be one starting quarterback. Right. And I, transfers happen. Transfers happen. And, and there was always going to be attrition at this position. I don't know who it will be or when it will happen, but it's going to happen. And I'm sure it will happen. I'd be shocked if it didn't. But it's much better than – let's rewind back to 2009. When Tyrod Taylor 
is Virginia Tech's starting quarterback, and Logan Thomas is redshirting. And by the way, Logan wasn't even recruited as a quarterback, but they just decided that they weren't going to have anybody after Tyrod, so they needed to go ahead and put Logan at quarterback. (laughs) Virginia Tech's backup quarterback that year was Juju Clayton. Uh, I I mean... I remember that name. Right. And (laughs) where we're at now from... And this is nothing against Juju. Juju's a very important player in the history of Tech football because he allowed Logan Thomas to redshirt. So he, he served his role. So this is nothing against Juju. But from a physical talent standpoint, we've come a long way with our backup quarterback from the days of Juju, Clayton. How about the the years of uh, Michael Brewer and Brendan Motley? Uh, Brendan Motley had the physical talent, but he just wasn't a natural quarterback, yeah. per se. Um, but I, I, I think... But the, the depth in that quarterback room wasn't exactly great. Well, well it wasn't great, but it was... It was where, where does Mark Leal fit in this discussion? Yeah, that, that, that's a big <laughs> yeah. question. That, he, yeah. he was Logan's no, backup, right? Now, Mark Leal trivia. Let me, let me, uh, oh, what am I trying to remember here, guys? Uh, what, that he left early in the season? Oh, he was Brewer's backup originally. Like, Motley was third string, and then Leal left in the well, middle of the season. Well, Mark Leal trivia, that big, long, consecutive scoring streak that Virginia Tech yeah. football yeah. has, yeah. was saved by Mark Leal throwing a touchdown pass to Isaiah Ford late in a 30 to nothing blowout <laughs> in Lane Stadium against Miami. I think they, I think they hooked up with like a minute left to go to save that scoring and streak. And it was also saved later in the season by Wake Forest managing to not score in regular. That's right. <laughs> oh man, oh, yeah, that was a that was an all. I actually didn't watch that game. You didn't miss much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I didn't miss I, anything. I, I sat in the stands for that game and uh, did you was really? ta- was talking to somebody about it just yesterday, I think, and I just rolled my eyes and said we were just sitting up there laughing, literally laughing at the poor quality of football from both sides. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bud was asked after the game if there was anything he could have done differently, and he was like, <laughs> what? You know the funny thing about that game? <laughs> what do you mean? I, 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 forget, I forget the Tech defensive back who did this, but Tech dropped an interception in the first half down by the sidelines that I thought could have been a pick six. Yeah, yeah I remember and, and I remember, I don't know if I tweeted it or just said it out loud, out loud where I was watching the game, but I said, man, I hope that doesn't come back to haunt him. <laughs> well, well, it sure did. It, it definitely did. And the person I was talking to recalled that Virginia Tech was in field goal range in regulation and that Scott Leffler called a lateral. And it got blown up, you know, and Tech got pushed out of field goal range. So that's part the, of the reason. The infinite did. genius of Scott Luffler. Uh, Let's go ahead and move on from Virginia Tech football and definitely that game because I know the fans who are listening to the podcast don't want to hear about that about awful, that awful, game. awful game. Or that Kansas game. Yeah. I do want to talk about uh, the ACC basketball landscape because it's definitely shifted yesterday with two big hires. Uh, Jeff Capel, who was a longtime assistant at Duke, former coach, At Oklahoma, he is now hired at Pittsburgh. And Chris Mack, who went to, uh, was a one seed this year with Xavier. Uh, He was at Xavier for a long time, from 2009 to 2018. Uh, He is now at Louisville. So, Chris, I know you you and I were talking about Jeff Capel at Pitt, but I want to get your thoughts on record, on the podcast. What do you think? Uh, I'm not... I'm not a big fan. Not sold on it? Yeah, I'm not sold on it. I mean, he had two really good years at Oklahoma with, with Blake Griffin. Made an Elite Eight in 2008-2009. Yeah, Sweet 16. Yeah. As soon as Griffin left, they won 13 games. And then the next year, they won 14 games. So, I just, I, I don't see it. Unless, you know, he's learned some more from being on Coach K's staff and everything like that. Um, now, that being said, I don't know that Pitt was set up to make a good hire right now. Um they're probably going to end up turning their roster over again. They're going to have to you, probably you, pay the full buyout to you, Kevin you know, Stallings, right? And uh, which and is 10 nine, million. Nine, ten million, right? So it's not like they have a ton of money to, to spend on a coach. Um, and and I think there were some coaches who might be hesitant to go into that environment where number one, you have to turn over the roster completely almost again, which is the likely scenario. And then number two, they fired the last coach after two years. You know, it's, how it's, how do you know that you're going to have the guarantee, right? Right. That you're going to get a fair shake in right. terms of turning the program around. That's right. That's right. I, th- I think that Pitt basketball has, you know, there's there's a lot of nuances to this, and I don't follow the program closely, but from the outside looking in, I, I think the move to the ACC has not been good for Pitt basketball. Um, when you think of old Big East basketball, late '70s through the, their best days in the '80s, you don't really think of Pitt. You think of you know Georgetown, St. John's, Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse. But, but Pitt was in the mix. I remember watching them with Jerome Lane. You know, he, he was the guy who broke the backboard. Yeah, and, yeah. 
and they they had an identity. They were kind of a middle of the pack Big East team that had some good years here and there. But to me, the what the Big East was back in the seventies and eighties fits Pittsburgh better than than what the ACC is. Not now. just the school, but the city, the blue collar. Yeah. Tough style. They play it. That was Big East all the way. They, they play a tough. Not just not just basketball, but football. Oh right, right. And they played a tough brand of basketball. They generally had a couple of bigs instead of you know a four guard lineup like so many teams do this <laughs> yeah. year. Uh, it just when you think Pitt, I mean, they weren't flashy. They were just tough, and they outworked you. And and that was uh, the case up until really they joined the ACC. So I th- I think they're they're in a transition. You know, not just from a coaching standpoint, not just from a roster standpoint, but from a. Uh, philosophy standpoint, a core identity standpoint. Are there any similarities to Pitt finding its way in the ACC basketball landscape to Virginia Tech finding its way in the ACC football landscape in terms of the fans trying to find teams that they they really get up and excited about to play? I don't know. I don't think so because when Tech first joined the ACC for football, our fans were just – they were excited to play every ACC game that we played, even Duke, because it was the first. It was the first, first one. ACC. Yeah. You know, what about now? Maybe, and not not when Virginia Tech first joined the ACC, but what about now in the in the current kind of maybe exhaustion of Tech playing Boston College every year or playing Duke every year? What exactly is the question? I get the sense that there are a lot of Tech fans that are. Um, not as enamored with getting in the ACC as maybe they were at first. Well, we and we it, actually wrote an article once upon a time that that what the ACC that Virginia Tech wound up with was not really what we expected. Yeah, and, and, and it was disappointing. And I think that there might be some similarity to how Pittsburgh basketball fans are currently feeling about being in the ACC basketball landscape. Well, you, when when Virginia Tech joined the ACC, you know Miami was still good, and and you know Florida State was still pretty good but they're not quite as good as they had been but yeah. you're still expecting to be playing against a really good Miami team and a really good Florida State team well, as soon as Tech joined the ACC boom Miami those teams fell off a cliff. Dro- just dropped <laughs> you know you started in the 2006 season I mean Miami just just went went downhill I think they had two losing records at Boston College made the the ACC championship game twice in a row. twice <laughs> twice in a row and uh and one year it was I think Louisville versus Wake Forest I think, uh, and yeah, and it was just or not Louisville. No, was it was it Georgia Tech and Wake Forest? It was I think it was Georgia yeah, Tech. Yeah, Georgia and Wake Tech Forest. and Wake Forest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember there was that long streak yeah, where Louisville ended up playing Wake Forest in the Orange Bowl. That's what I was thinking. But, oh boy! But yeah, so uh, yeah, it was just not what was expected. And now, now Virginia Tech was able to take advantage of that. I mean, that helped them win a few more games than they might otherwise would would have won because the competition level was down. But you're sitting there like, man, the key ACC game of the week this week is number 16 Virginia Tech and number 12 Wake Forest or whatever in Winston-Salem. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, that was that was Wake and Georgia Tech in 2006. Yeah, that's right. And Virginia Tech. Wake Forest won 9-6. to six. W- w- Wake Forest won. Since v- Virginia Tech. Virginia Will Tech, shaking his head. Virginia Tech crushed Wake Forest that year. You know, they, they went down to Winston-Salem. We went down to that game and had a really good time. At least I went down to it. And it was like twenty four to six, and and, uh, and it wasn't even that close. It wasn't even that close. That was the game yeah. where uh, Xavier DB, Returned I believe it was, a, a fumble for a touchdown. I believe wasn't it? Well, and I know that it was either Cam Chancellor or Xavier DB really popped one of their guys. I can't believe yeah, he Duke was actually made the ACC championship game in twenty thirteen, and they lost by about forty, right? Uh, just about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it, it wasn't yeah. close. So, so there's just there hasn't been enough quality depth in the ACC throughout the years, in my opinion. But I think right now we're starting to get where yeah. where we need to be. It seems um, like there we, there are very few doormats. Right, well, we need we need Virginia Tech, Florida State, Miami, and Clemson to be good. Yeah, Virginia Tech-Miami has to be the, the marquee matchup in the Coastal, and Florida State and Clemson has to right. be the marquee matchup in, in the Atlantic. Right, right. You know, I mean, while it's, it's nice to have, you know, a team like Wake Forest be capable, but – if they're doing anything better than going four and four, or five and three, that that means somebody else isn't doing as well as they should be doing. Yeah, uh, if, if yeah. Wake Forest, I also Duke, like having a competitive NC State. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, having that's nice, and also, in, 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 in as much as Tech fans hate Georgia Tech, I like Georgia Tech being competitive. It uh, it adds something. It I, does. I don't I don't know if like is the proper term. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, it, it it adds a bit there. Yeah, I'm um, getting triple option fatigue though. <laughs> 
<laughs> Although, to be honest, they weren't much of a triple option. You would feel better if, if Tech was beating them. Oh, but, yeah. But yeah. Tech can't, be, Tech can't beat Georgia Tech been, lately. They haven't been able to. Um, Three out of four, they've yeah. lost him. Thoughts on Chris Mack at Louisville? Good hire. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, some sometimes guys that come out of certain basketball schools, like every year it seems like the VCU coach – or every VCU coach ends up getting promoted to a bigger job, right? That's because it's inherently, it's I'm not going to say easy, but it's not a, VCU is not a tough job. I mean, they can take non-qualifiers at VCU. They can take players that, that some other schools can't take. They have great fan support. Right, right, so, right exactly. And they're basketball only because I don't have a football program. Uh, Shaka has not had nearly the success at Texas because he can't necessarily take anybody he wants to. And uh, they're not, got a lot of resources, but they're not just a basketball school. Um, it's kind of the same thing at Xavier. Um, to, Xavier's like a big, big VCU when it comes to basketball. It's it's basketball only. And anybody who coaches there is going to be set up for success. So you never know quite what you're going to get. They've been good for a They've long time. They've been good time. for a long time. Chris Mack was there since 2009. Um, oh. And I'm pretty sure that this is his only head coaching gig. He's 215-97 and 97 oh, with yeah. eight NCAA appearances. He's, he's done awesome. And how many NCAA games has he won? 11. Is it 10 or 11? It's, it's 11. Yeah. It's, mm. it, I think David Teal said it's the most NCAA tournament wins of any ACC coaching hire since Roy Williams, who had won like 34 NCAA games in yeah. Kansas. So the guy's got a lot of experience winning games in the postseason. I know they went out earlier than people thought they would this year, and that was disappointing for him. But uh, I, I think he's a very good hire for Louisville. Well, that's just, I mean, if you're Xavier – you got to be frustrated, man. I don't know, because they've done this before. This, this isn't their first rodeo. Their first I know. But Pete, Pete Gillum was a good coach there. Did Dave Skip Lato? Prosser. Prosser. Uh, where'd, La- Lato, where'd Dave Lato come he from? He came from DePaul. Yeah. And then but, but anyway, they have a history of having good coaches and replacing them with another good coach. It's a different mindset than, as we've discussed many times, it's a different mindset than what you have here at Virginia Tech. Yeah. yeah at Virginia different. Tech, on the basketball side of the house, you've been hoping the coach leaves a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> on, the fo- on the football side of the house, you're used to 30 years of hoping Frank doesn't leave. Right. So yeah. It's, whereas it's, at Xavier, they're like and, – and Cincinnati football got to be the same yes. way too. They, they were cranking out really good coaches. And you just got to have the mindset, okay, thanks for your service, next man next up. Next man up. You, you, you've <laughs> always got to have a working list if, if you're an athletic director at certain schools. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as good a job as Xavier is, the Louisville job is a better job. It is. And, and it, the ESPN's reported it's somewhere around $4 million that they're paying him. Oof. I don't know what he was making at Xavier, but I'm assuming it wasn't $4 million. Right. Now, I think Xavier's a great job. Um, oh, sure, I, I yeah. Mean, I mean – if Villanova can win a national championship, why can't Xavier, right? Theoretically, Theoretically yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, but but at the same time, the, the access of talent that, that that you'll have at Louisville is a little bit higher than there's going to be at Xavier. So, uh, hey, one one of those early season games you really ought to put on your calendars when Xavier and Cincinnati play each other. Oh, by by the way, speaking of early season games, um, I was looking at the Gildan Classic field. Uh, yesterday when I was writing an update about the Maui Invitational. Which Tech plays in next year. Correct. Alabama's in the Gildan Classic. Might have a rematch. Oh, wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. Colin Sexton will be gone. He will be gone. <laughs> so Ben will probably John Petty won't will be, be back. As good. I'm sure he'll be ready to go John, six of John eight. Again. Petty, no, 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 no. I want John Petty to go one of eight in this one. <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. Uh, the last topic here I want to hit on the podcast. Uh, Virginia Tech had a board of visitors meeting earlier this week. There were uh, multiple key things in here that I think that we should that we should kind of expand on. Uh, the first, obviously, is the ten million dollars for the ACC Network Studio. Um, the AC Network Studio will be built in the press conference room in the south tower of Lane Stadium. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with the setup, there's a, that big wind tunnel on the south side. You go through there, and then you go all the way almost to the end, and there's a hallway. In that hallway, you make um, you go down the hallway maybe 20 steps, make a left into the room, and it's this big, massive room where they have the podium, the stanchion, whatever you want to call it. It's when you watch a Justin Fuente post game interview. That's, on where, TV, it's that's where it's from. coming from. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's a pretty sizable room. So they're going to turn that into the into control rooms in the studio. They're going to repurpose a couple other rooms in that area as well. And so, so Virginia Tech's ACC Network Studio will be in the South End Zone facility. Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, I and I guess post game interviews will still be done there. That's undecided. Yeah, that's that's up in the air. And, okay. And, and that makes sense because they're only using that seven times a year. But 
the, the big thing with this is that the $10 million price tag was a bit higher than everybody had thought, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, last year, Witt said in an article, in an interview that he did with Andy Bitter of the Roanoke Times that he was estimating 5 to $7 million. And I've read some other articles from some other athletic directors where they were kind of estimating the same. I don't know if the price tag is because they decided to uh, some of the equipment was maybe more expensive than, th- than, th- than they thought it would be, or maybe they decided to build it a little bigger than they originally des- decided to, or whether they just uh, – or, or whatever. I, I don't know. Maybe they I just missed. <laughs> maybe they just missed. It's, it's hard to say. But what I find interesting was the comments in, in the press release today. Um, where Whit Babcock thanked Tim Sands for making it possible is basically what he said. So I'm wondering if the academic side is is putting up the money for this because he or to- um, you know Whit's been running in the red now for two years and, two and years. that that was taboo and verboten and, and all that stuff. We're going to talk about that for many many years. Uh, maybe in thanking Tim Sands, he went to Tim Sands and said, uh, "Oh, you know, we're going to." This is really going to run us in the red. And Sand said, Sand said, listen, don't worry about it. Right. So one of those two things, or maybe some combination. Yeah, right. definitely could have been. Yeah, and we had heard that they, with the loan they took out for the $34 million facilities for for the indoor track and for baseball was actually a loan from the university. So Tim Sands and his administration, to their credit, are being very uh, – they're, they're very. They're working together. They're working yeah, together. Yeah. Collaboration very, very well. going on. Yeah, definitely. yeah. You know, and you, you, I'm sure at some schools, you know, I don't, I don't pay attention to what happens, the, to the dynamics at other schools nearly as much as I do at Virginia Tech. But you know, I'm sure at some schools you've got academic people that just don't like the idea of big college athletics and and can make things difficult for athletic departments. But that's obviously not the case here with Tim Sainz. Yeah, yeah. So so let's add some historical context to this. Yeah. And and those of you out there listening to this, do this. Go to techsideline.com and on the homepage over on the right hand border you got to scroll down just a little bit there's a search box search on the year of our discontent and what you'll get is you'll get a kickback of about five or six articles I wrote over 10 years ago which talk about Virginia Tech's uh, financial difficulties in 1986-87 football and basketball being put on probation at the same time um, athletics was a mess at Virginia Tech. And at my graduation in Lane Stadium in 1987, Governor Blyles came in and spoke, and I wasn't paying any attention. But he raked, he, raked, <laughs> he raked Tech over the coals for all the bad publicity coming out over athletics. So that was 86-87, and what that did was that ingrained a certain culture here at Virginia Tech of not being risky with athletic money, um, running in the black, uh, stay out of trouble. That's always in the culture of any athletic program. And, <laughs> and, and that, although it was 1986-87, that culture and that mindset lasted a really, really long time. Because when Jim Weaver started here in 97, it was still part of the culture. There were guys like Menace Ridenauer and Paul Torgerson and Charles Steger, who were around at this university when all that went down. And it was deeply ingrained into the culture of the athletic side and the academic side. Those people are all gone. Yeah. And with the people going, the culture's probably gone as well. So we don't know, like, if, if Jim Weaver had come to Torgerson or Steger and said, I'm going to have to run $3 million in the red this year, that would not have gone over very well, is my, is my guess. They might have said, no, you're not. Find a way to cut, cut, <laughs> cut expenses. Yeah. yeah, you know, Jim Weaver never went there. He, he, he aired on the other side of the equation running hugely in the black some years. Um, Wit's different. And yeah. Wit's relationship with the BOV and with the school administration, with the powers to be, is very different. Um, so just sure wanted, seems that way. wanted to add the historical context. We'd also to like it. to point out that the studio is required. It is. It's, it's not something All that Virginia Tech is just choosing to, to waste it. money on. Yeah. All ACC schools have to have this set up for when the ACC network, the new ACC Tech's network, starts current, next current year. current schedule slate is for this to be done in spring 2019. Uh, because that that's roughly around the time when the AC network is going to launch. Right, and you know yeah. it's not, and it's not just a five to seven million dollar one time investment. It is for like you know equipment and and the construction of, of the rooms and things like that. But the employees of Hokie Vision is going to go have, from twenty to one hundred. Yeah, they're hiring eight, we're a ton eighty of people. new employees because I, I I don't I doubt most people out there have ever been in a big production room before. Uh, 
a couple a couple years ago when ACC uh, football um, inter, um, preseason media stuff. What's ACC it called? Kickoff. ACC football kickoff. That's yeah. right. <laughs> it was down in Charlotte. Uh, I've got a friend that I went to college with who works uh, in production for for NASCAR. And the NASCAR building is right there next to where all that was going on yeah. in Charlotte. So I randomly ran into her on the street down there, and I hadn't seen her in years. But she gave me a tour of the NASCAR facilities there. You know, it's like tw- it's a 20-story high building with so much TV production and studios and things like that. And that's when I really realized what a huge production something like that is. And this is not going to be a 20-story tall building or anything. Yeah. But I-, I can picture it in my mind because I've been in there and seen something like that. And yeah, this is a huge, huge investment. And it takes a lot of specialized people to know how that stuff works. Indeed it does. So we'll have to see how that works out and see if they so, can get So I'm sitting here with an impish grin on my face. So if Hokie Vision staff is going from 20 to 100, that means we're going to be treated to more cool two-and-a-half-minute-long videos on Twitter with cool background music that make everybody look cool? Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> we need more of those. Yeah, oh it's going to be a lot of marketing. Let's move That's on. That's buried deep in the podcast. That's, the, your, that's your punch-in-the-face moment from Will deep in the podcast. The other thing I wanted to hit on from the Board of Visitors meeting uh, was indeed, and Will, you mentioned it, that Tech ran in the red again, and uh, we will have our full financial report on TSL from Randy Jones coming up here soon. Um, but the, these are some early numbers that we got from the Board of Visitors um, presentation. So uh, revenue was at its highest it's been, shocker, yeah. at $87.4 million. And, of course, in tune, expenditures were at their highest it's ever been at $90.7 million. Yeah. Uh, that's an overall deficit of $3.28. Uh, football ran a profit of $23.3 million. Um, Men's basketball ran a profit of $210,296. Hmm. Women's basketball ran a deficit of $3.3 million, and other sports ran a deficit of $23.5 million. Um, what are your thoughts on Virginia Tech running in the red for this is the second year in a row? You know, I read an article from Andy Bitter that from, from the interview he did with Witt last year, and Witt talked about you know running in the red isn't something that they want to do. But he's he's still looking at his first few years at Virginia Tech, including now, as kind of the investment stage. You're, you're investing for a future, and and you look at a lot of businesses these days when they first start up and and they're getting funded. They're not running in the black. They're not making a profit until several years down the line when the business plan really kicks in and everything like that. Uh, and I get the sense that it's kind of the same way with the way Witt's trying to run this athletic department. He's kicking a lot of money into investments and things like that, but he's trying to build up the infrastructure to possibly, you know, to increase future profits. I mean, this, you know, $10 million investment into a studio is for the ACC network. Well, you know, people are estimating that the ACC network could bring in 8 to $15 million a year per school in the ACC. That thing's going to pay for itself really quickly. You should, yeah. yeah. So here, here's a little wrinkle that I just thought of. And, and, again, I hope people are still listening because this is pretty deep into the podcast. You mentioned a loan from the university to pay for the stuff they're doing, the rector and, and English. That's what I've heard. That's not, it's not been put in publication anywhere, but that, that's what I heard from a good source. Yeah, so, yeah. so let's, let's say that that's true. Here, here's an advantage Virginia Tech Athletics gets from that. And Randy Jones could speak to this a lot better than I could or people with, with knowledge of this. But it's my understanding that when you borrow money from the state, the, like Virginia Tech, it's the state borrowing money. So let's say Virginia Tech goes outside to borrow money to uh, build the uh, south end zone mm-hmm. or the west side expansion for Lane Stadium. You are by law required to keep a certain percentage of what you borrow in cash reserves. Are the rules the same if you're borrowing from your own school? That's a good question. So, that is a good question. Um, you know, we, we've, we've run the numbers over the years, and Jim Weaver ran the department in the black year after year after year, anywhere from 2 to $8 million. And I'm not exaggerating. There was one year where it was like $8 million in the black. Uh, when, when you run in the red like this, you got to dip into those cash right. reserves. And if your requirement for keeping cash reserves is less because you're borrowing from your own school as opposed to some outside entity – that's good stuff. And it allows state, you to do that. And all state laws are different. I mean, you got to remember, remember when UConn built their 40,000-seat football stadium, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when, when they were trying to make their program a lot bigger and everything. Remember, the state paid for that stadium. The state of Connecticut built them that stadium. And uh, so state laws are different everywhere. I, I think to a certain extent, 
the laws in the state of Florida allow for state funding of certain facilities. I, I would say that like most that. states, right, right. Virginia is probably actually a, a kind of uncommon and kind of it, a rarity, which is unfortunate for right, Virginia for, Tech. For Virginia Tech right. Really unfortunate for Virginia Tech because UVA has got Carl Smith who can stroke the $25 million check, you know, almost <laughs> 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know what kind of contributions were made for, for JPJ, but you know, tech historically doesn't write checks like that. It's starting to happen a little bit more with the $15 million for the, uh, Student Athlete uh, Performance Center. Thank you. I can, I can never remember the the buzzword name. One of these days, they're going to name it after the people who donated the yes, money, but are. we're not there yet. Uh, and also, really quick note on that: construction for that isn't slated to start until summer 2019, according to the Board of Visitors presentation, and it won't be done until 2021. Hmm. That's unfortunate, but you know, it's, it that's, that's a big project. It is, and it's gonna it's gonna take a lot. There's a lot of construction that has to do with the current Jamerson Athletic Center in terms of drilling down and, and getting more, uh, strengthening up the, the foundation and whatnot. So that there's a lot that they're going to have to do with that. But yes. we'll have to see how Virginia Tech's finances look, I guess, when the ACC network launches. Mm-hmm. And we'll have to see the early returns and how much they're getting per year from that. And if that will then get Virginia Tech back in the black to the point where they won't have to worry about this. Because I think that it, it's, it's, a de- it's a concern. It's not something that you should freak out about. You know, the world's not ending. But I think it's something that Virginia Tech fans should be should keep an eye on in terms of if this becomes a trend. I also want to point out that I think in, in the modern society that we live in, with uh, so many people being in favor of of paying athletes and things like that, like that these days, you know, you see some of these schools like your Texas and your USC's and Alabama's running these huge Texas A&M. huge profits. I mean, not just, straight up, I'm not talking revenues. I'm talking about straight up oh, millions okay. of dollars in profits every year and just sitting on this cash. And that's kind of a bad look. It's a better look for Virginia Tech to be able to say, look, we're spending more money than we actually have. <laughs> yeah. You know, more money than we're actually making. And, and, and we're building our athletes new facilities and things like that. And everything, everything Virginia Tech is doing is is – Worthwhile is the way I would it's, put it. Yeah, it seems that way. Everything they're doing has a direct benefit. Um, well, you know, you could argue that the, 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 the studio doesn't have a direct benefit on athletes, but they're required to do that. Well, it, it, it can have a direct benefit to the athletes in the sense that it will provide more money to the school so they can build them more stuff. Okay, yeah, that's okay. So, so it's an indirect. It's indirect, indirect, right. So it's not like tech is out there building barbershops and, and swimming <laughs> pools and things like that. Um and other schools are doing it, and uh, and they're and they're doing or it paying and head coaches just, ten million dollars right. a year to go away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not to mention what they're paying the guys who are actually there. Yeah, so it's uh, I, I like the way Virginia Tech's athletic department is being run from that standpoint. I, I think it's it's not necessarily a good look these days when you're making five or ten million dollars in profits every year, and that causes people on the outside to look in and say. What are your athletes get? How can you better spend right, that right, money? Right, yeah. right, exactly. So, yeah, well, well, we'll definitely have to see how it goes. But that is all the time we have for this podcast. Uh, really quick before we go, Virginia Tech women's basketball all the way into the semifinals of the WNIT. They take on West Virginia tonight. That's Wednesday night at 7 p.m. at West Virginia. We'll have to see how that one goes. As far as I know, that's not on television. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know if anybody's streaming you can it or anything follow, like that. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be tweeting it out or tweeting up updates from my Twitter account. I'll be trying to make some updates on the women's basketball board on techsideline.com. Um, really quick, if you haven't, go read my story on Devin Hunter. That's on techsideline.com. Free We're store. Gonna, yeah, free store. We're going to have tons more free content coming from that press conference. And uh, we'll have a practice report update this afternoon. There you go for our TSL Pass subscribers. Subscribers, yep. So go ahead, read all that good stuff. And then until next time, we'll have another brand new podcast. But until then, for Will Stewart, for Chris Coleman, and for myself, Ricky the Blue, thanks for listening.